Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Earth Day is right around the corner, but we're far from putting Mother Earth first, according to the latest UN climate change report. Plus, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has okayed 20 all-electric public school buses. Will a proposed new state Senate bill guarantee a whole fleet of electric MBTA buses? And environmentalists are getting pumped up for heat pumps. They're touted as a cleaner and more efficient way to heat and cool your home and a way of reducing reliance on Russian gas or propane. These stories and more on our Environmental Roundtable. Later in the show, Lexington, Massachusetts, the birthplace of American liberty, did not guarantee liberty and justice for all. A new look at colonial Lexington brings the stories of local enslaved and emancipated black people to the forefront. But first, joining me remotely, Beth Daly, editor and general manager of The Conversation U.S. Hello, Beth. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to be back. Mm-hmm. And Cabell Ames, political director of Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Hi, Cabell. Hi, all. Great to be with you. And also with me, Dr. Aaron Bernstein, Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital, and an Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Hello, Dr. Bernstein. Hello, Kelly. Well, let's just jump right in. By the time this show airs, likely the state Senate will have voted on a sweeping climate bill. At the heart of it are electrifying a number of things. But basically, the bill wants to transition to clean energy onto the electrical grid. So that's why this is a big part of it. And to uh, wean homes from fossil fuel and to dramatically reduce emissions from the state's 4.3 million cars. I want to talk about this climate bill in the context of Mayor Wu having just purchased 20 electric school buses as a pilot program because she's moving in that direction as well. So first, let's talk about the climate bill. Cabell, let's start with you. Where are you on particularly the proposals for moving toward electric vehicles? And what do you think about the rest of the bill? Well, in particular, the electric vehicles is something that my organization has worked diligently on since the beginning of this session. Uh, we understood that a lot of our emissions, 60% of them, are transportation related, and that we don't have a lot of infrastructure for electric vehicles. And there's also a barrier to purchasing electric vehicles because getting a tax break at the end of the cycle um, doesn't help you know, most folks be able to purchase a vehicle today. So the rebate system is designed to turn in a high emitting vehicle 
and receive a coupon, if you will, to be able to purchase an electric vehicle immediately. And so this is something that was borrowed from the state of California. They did it by executive order. My organization thought it was a great idea. So we talked to the Senate. They agreed. We talked to the House. They agreed. And it's actually um, in both houses currently. We're just hearing about it right now from the Senate. So we're actually very excited about it. Okay. Um, How do you feel, Dr. Aaron Bernstein? Well, there's no question that getting fossil fuels out of vehicles is going to make lots of people breathe easier, prevent a whole host of air pollution-related harms. And as Kabul was saying, there's uh, real barriers in place right now to making that happen. So this legislation is going to hopefully accelerate the pace that we see uptake here. I'm particularly mindful that even though, you know, as Kabul mentioned, transportation is the lion's share of emissions, the pollution burden from that is not equally distributed in the state and certainly not in the city of Austin. And so we really need to pay attention to the communities where they may be next to major roadways, they may have a high percentage of vehicles that are polluting in their neighborhoods, and really paying attention to making sure we get rid of those polluting exhausts first to the extent we can. And Beth? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we know now to really foster this new way of having uh, vehicles is you have to get consumers and help them transition. And I think this bill goes a long way to doing that. I mean, you can always say it's too little. I would argue it's it's still not enough because nothing's going to move unless we get money in the hands of consumers to transition their cars over to electric, and then we can start to see real results. So it's, it's, it's very positive in my view. Mm-hmm. All right. Now let's take a listen to Boston Mayor Wu announcing the electrification of Boston school buses earlier this month. We're going to tackle one of the most immediate ways that we can reduce pollution in our communities, make life healthier for our young people and our school communities, which is by moving towards electrification of our school bus fleet. In the 2022-2023 school year, Boston Public Schools will deploy up to 20 electric school buses in a pilot program so that we can understand the exact needs for charging infrastructure, for the routing, and for the maintenance. The goal is to have full electrification of our school bus fleet by the year 2030. I think the important thing to add here, following what you've just said about electrification of of just people's normal cars, um, this program will launch in May, and part of it is to train folks to fix these vehicles and to provide more places so there can people can charge up, if you will, all over the city, as opposed to maybe just a few limited spots right now where people might be able to charge their electric cars, which I think, in my opinion, is about as valuable as the pilot program itself of just putting these 20 electric school buses on the road. Dr. Bernstein, would you agree? Yeah, I think this is a fabulous pilot program. You know, we need to electrify all vehicles. School buses are an obvious choice because they have predictable routes and sort of a, you know, point A and point B system of going around. And and I think we need to experiment. There are going to be bumps in the road for sure, but we've got to figure this out. And this is a great way to get us started. And I I should be also clear that school buses are where children whose developing lungs are getting exposed to potentially very high amounts of air pollution. And, you know, we know that one in five children in the United States has asthma from breathing tailpipe exhaust, right? That's that's on a population average. And And in communities of color and low wealth communities, 
um, the best data is out of Oakland, something like half of the children in, in the uh, certain parts of Oakland have asthma because they're breathing tailpipe emissions. So the more we can focus on emissions they're getting into kids' lungs and school buses are a great place to start, the better. And Campbell, Mayor Wu is open about making sure that every time she announces an initiative about that has to do with climate and climate change initiatives, that she says it's also part of an equity issue. So similar to what Dr. Bernstein is saying, that because of the, the program training folks and, and making a more availability for people to charge, that's part of the equity piece. And at the same time, that's part of the overall climate initiative. Correct. And she is someone who ran on a Green New Deal, and the centerpiece of the Green New Deal is equity. So I think she is bringing home her campaign promises, and she is reaching out to the climate community for on listening tours. She has set up numerous committees to study the effects of climate change, and school buses are easy because they're owned by the city or town, right? So she is going for the low-hanging fruit proving what's possible when you seize the opportunity that we have to electrify that not only addresses health, but addresses the equity measures around employment. There's so much that's available out there that the Green New Deal specifies around employment and the opportunities. And so I think that she's doing a great job in driving home the message that she wanted to bring to her city, which was that a Green New Deal is for all and that she's going to implement it in a way that brings everybody in and doesn't leave anybody out. And I think that I just really applaud her for hitting the ground running. Um, you want to add something, Beth? I just want to say how totally exciting it is that this is like a really complete proposal because something the head of school at, at Madison Park, Dr. Sidney Brown had mentioned was that there's not enough workers already in the electric vehicle industry. And here you have students at Madison Park and other Vogue schools actually training to be on the vanguard of this new industry. And that is so exciting. And I think as this develops over the next few years, it, you know, Massachusetts can be a real leader in this. I mean, how exciting is that for a kid to be able to be trained on how to fix the next generation of cars coming in? So it's really exciting. I'll just note that that is some of what made other people excited about the wind proposals, that there were supposed to be many other people involved in those jobs that generally in the past have been sort of narrowly fixated on just certain groups, but the deal would open it up to a lot of other folks. So and maybe we're moving in several directions. Beth, while I have you, why don't we switch over to the latest UN report on limiting global warming? And they don't have much good news. The headline is that with all the pledges of the nations around the world, it's probably not going to stop global warming. And that was, um, we're supposed to stop it from exceeding 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit within the next few decades. But we don't even know if all the companies are going to follow through, as this New York Times piece makes clear. And here we are. So we've got pledges, but it's not going to stop. So what does this mean? I mean, how do we assess this? Okay, so I'm going to be a sort of, I'm an optimist at heart, okay? And yes, it's clear we're going to blow past, in in my view, 1.5, which is, you know, the idea to keep it under 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, But but I will, I want to note something that there is great progress, and I think it's really important to to talk about that so people don't get too depressed about that we're not, we're not coming together, is that clean energy has become more affordable. That is a critical, critical point, Um, you know, uh, 
solar and wind energy, electric vehicle batteries. The prices of them have dropped significantly in the last 10 years or so. And so all of a sudden you, you have in 2020, solar and wind providing something like close to 10% of the world's electricity. That wasn't the case 10 years ago. You know, it is a depressing report. It called for us to do a lot more, more quickly. I, I, I don't know if we will succeed in that. And that's, that is depressing. But I will say that the efforts to develop renewable energy is succeeding, maybe not as fast as we need, but it is. And I just, I just really want to highlight that. I think it's very important. It was not expected to be this quick. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's an important note to make. Let's take a listen to Professor Ed Hawkins. He's the lead author of the latest IPCC report. So this report states as an absolute fact that human influence is warming the climate. Um, and that's a very stark reminder um, that it is our activities which are changing the climate and affecting these extreme weather events. Um, and as the planet continues to warm, these consequences just get worse. So I wanted to play that um, before you uh, spoke, Cabell, because uh, part of the report says the richest people and the wealthiest nations are heating up the planet. And the richest 10% specifically are responsible for between a third to nearly a half of all the greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, that's us, right? And China, a few other people, but certainly that's the United States. Certainly. And, and Massachusetts, too. Right. Mm. I mean, we do have some of the wealthiest people living right here in our state. So um, I, I don't necessarily agree, though, that we're going to blow past 1.5. That's a very scary thought, because right now we're at 1.1 and we already have severe famine in South Sudan. We have floods, fires, hurricanes. Um, it's we're already in a really bad situation. And so the reason that you have, for instance, the science community chaining themselves to banks and risking arrest right now post this report is because the 1.5 is unacceptable because of the feedback loops that then occur, which gets you on this traveling spiral that you can't now contain nor help. No heat pump, uh, no electrification can get you back once you break those feedback loops. So it's really critical that we do work now, that we raise the issue that pledges are not enough, and that the technology, to Beth's point, is here, it is working, and we just need to militarize and incentivize it in the immediate. And I think that that's what Massachusetts is trying to do through their climate bill, other states, other countries. This is the wake-up call that we need because 1.5 is not a world that we want to live in. And if that's where we're going and, that, and that's something that we can't avoid, then adaptation measures need to be at top of mind for every lawmaker and leader in, in the world, quite frankly. Hmm. And Dr. Bernstein, a couple of other things highlighted in the report that maybe will get people's attention about the severity of it. Hurricanes. And I looked at this and I thought, oh, are they they couldn't have turned this around about the hurricane activity just happening, which everybody now has heard about early, worse, horrible um, in um, certainly the southwest uh, part of the country. This report is referring to the severity of the 2020 Atlantic hurricane season, and they said um, the most extreme extreme three-hour rainfall rates were 10% higher than they would have been without climate change. Couple that with the air pollution in the tropics, which we've touched on a number of times here. I would think that those 
there are many other pieces in this report, but those two things alone, you know, people know they're experiencing. This is not something they heard about. They are experiencing it and they know it, Dr. Bernstein. Yeah, you know, Kelly, I'm a pediatrician and uh, I, I may not have important experience in all kinds of walks of life, but one thing I have a lot of experience in is dealing with really, really bad news that affects children and families on a regular basis. And with that experience, I've learned that what you do in that moment when you understand a reality that no one really, you know, as Cavill so eloquently put, no one really wants to look at, is you focus on what's important right now. And what's important right now is to not fixate on the future. It's to fixate on the moment we're in and what I would argue is arguably the single greatest opportunity to advance human welfare in the history of our species. The things we need to do to address climate change, even if climate change weren't happening at all, namely getting us off fossil fuels, improving the quality of our diets, changing our transportation systems so we're not sitting in cars and stuck in traffic. These are the very prescriptions that if I had a magic pen, I would write to address the health problems that are frankly at the core of our declining age expectancy in the United States. And for the children in our country, you know, what's driving the mental health disaster, what's contributing to our rates of asthma, what is causing the obesity epidemic. These are critical actions for the health of everyone, especially the health of low wealth communities and communities of color in this country. And, and I think with all urgency, we should care about our wellness now and then recognize that when we do that, we're going to make a livable future for our children and their children. Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Beth Daly of The Conversation U.S., Cabal Ames of Better Future Project, and Dr. Aaron Bernstein of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. It's our environmental roundtable. Um, everybody's talking about a heat pump. If I, I don't know that I had heard about a heat pump but until like maybe the last few weeks, and it's set in also the context of of the invasion of Ukraine, and many people pointing out that a heat pump would have made it easier for certain European countries to not be reliant on Russian gas and propane. So first, before I get your take on that, here's a Vox video explainer on heat pumps featuring Michael Thomas, founder of Carbon Switch. Heat pumps suffer from one of the worst names of all time. A heat pump not only heats a home, but it also cools one. And that's the opportunity. If instead of traditional ACs, people buy electric machines that both heat and cool, the need for fossil fuel heating will go way down. Heat pumps are one of the most important climate solutions that we have. Okay, so Beth, is it as important as people are making it out to be at this moment? And could it have impacted what's going on in Europe and Ukraine now? Yeah, that's a great question. So basically, these devices heat homes in winter and cool them in the summer by moving heat in and out of buildings rather than by burning fossil fuels. And they tend to be three to four times more efficient than furnaces. So it, it has a big impact. Um, you know, predicting whether it would have made a difference uh, is, is kind of hard to do given all the different forces that are playing. But the fact is, having more efficient 
devices to heat homes, an enormous source of um, carbon emissions, it, it, it is, is going to work. And if we had more heat pumps, we'd have less emissions. So the exact interplay with Ukraine, to me, it more highlights the fact that we need, there, there, there are options out there, back to my optimism point, that really can help us get to a more carbon neutral place. I have no sense of how many people in the United States are currently using heat pumps. Do you have a sense of that? Um, well, most most heating systems in the U.S. use forced air furnaces that run on natural gas or electricity, or or in some cases still like heating oil. I know it's increasing in numbers, but I, I don't know. Maybe Cobble might know that. <laughs> All right, Cobble, do you know that? I will. I will say, is it not enough? The st- the yeah. price of a heat pump is extraordinary. The sticker shock is real, depending on the space, mm-hmm. right? So this is the equity piece that we need to address because it is a solution. It it is an exciting solution. There are lots of those, but the price barrier that exists is severe. And we need to address it. And Massachusetts is working on this. There are bills that address this that subsidize, actually, heat pumps that start in environmental justice communities, retrofitting those homes, because we do have to retrofit a million homes in the state to meet our climate goals. And that came out through the IPCC report as well. So heat pumps are part of that answer, but you cannot expect the average American to purchase a heat pump. It is not easy to find out information. There is misinformation. Um, and Mass Save here in Massachusetts hasn't been much help as they have only provided energy efficiency to 451 homes, as we know from the Globe Report. So the price barrier is real, and we're trying to f- fix this through subsidies. But to meet our climate goals, we have to retrofit homes, and this is the way that we do it. So seizing an opportunity, but recognizing what needs to be done and the equity measures that need to be in place. Okay. So if the government wanted to now back to the Russian-Ukraine connection, wanted to scale up, as environmental activist Bill McKibben has suggested, production of heat pumps, maybe they might have had the impact of helping some of the countries not feel so trapped on their reliance of Russian gas and oil. Dr. Bernstein, what say you? Well, I'll chime in and say that the uptake of heat pumps in the United States is very small. It's about 1% of homes and maybe not even that much nationally. Um, Colleagues of mine at Harvard did a study looking at the uptake issue and cost was a huge barrier as has been mentioned. But, you know, heat pumps are one solution and there are other solutions and experiments happening in, in Massachusetts that I think are really worth attention. So many of you will remember the disaster around gas heating that happened oh, a few years ago in the Merrimack Valley. Oh, yes. Yes. Right? right. So in the wake of that, the question was, what do we do to the homes in Lawrence and Andover to, you know, get people's heat back? And a lot of the lower wealth communities, uh, particularly in Lawrence, they were initially offered horribly inefficient furnaces in very leaky homes. And that was about as dumb as any proposal could imagine. Low wealth homes tend to be less well insulated. They have a greater percentage of their heat going literally out the window. And so that's a, it is a perpetuator of inequity because people are spending more money than they should. So um, a group led by um, Zena Mugabe and Audrey Shulman called Heat worked with utility companies to do a pilot uh, geothermal microgrid. And geothermal is taking heat energy from the ground to heat and cool people's homes. So this is not a heat pump as we've been talking about. This is a different energy system and there's no fuel cost because you know it's the heat of the earth. 
And I think it's a really compelling example of, of thinking differently about how we can do heating and cooling. It's a renewable energy source. There's no carbon pollution. And the question is, can the utilities absorb the infrastructure cost and charge ratepayers a fair rate so that we can you know, get rid of this upfront cost issue that individual households might have to bear with heat pumps? You know, is this another pathway to getting us off fossil fuel heat? And, and I think it's, again, another really critical experiment to find a path forward on how we can heat and cool buildings off of fossil fuels. And to your point, something that can be done now. Right now. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. happening now. Mm-hmm. I, I would add geothermal is a really good option. And, and, and it's, it can't, it's not everywhere it can happen necessarily, but it can happen in a lot of places. And just to the cost issue for the heat pumps, which is absolutely true. I mean, it's for most of the things we talk about, right? There's a, there's a, uh, it's funny, I uh, have a, a friend who got something called a mini split. So these are not systems that are going to heat your whole house. They're going to heat a room. And it, they're interesting because they're less expensive. I'm not saying it's going to be adopted by low wealth communities by any mean or individuals in them, but it's a way to sort of understand how they work. And I know people are trying these out in a smaller way to try to understand them, but it is a cost prohibitive issue all around. Hmm. Well, a lot of people are reporting on something called eco-anxiety, particularly among young folks. One of our reporters did a piece on it, and they're calling it a second pandemic because it's so high. The quote in our piece was, there's a lot of like fear and sadness that I feel about climate change. There's also a lot of anger. This is a high school junior who talked to GBH News. It, it just feels like a very direct threat to my life and lots of people's lives. And here is also Nayana Premeth, a sustainable educator and eco-YouTuber speaking about the eco-anxiety. It's not surprising to see an alarming increase in eco-anxiety over the past few years. So are you somebody who can't fall asleep because of constant thought of the impact of climate change? Or does the unsustainable habits of your friends or family make you feel even more guilt with no reason of your own? Or do you always feel a sense of doom when you hear about the rising sea levels? Then, welcome to the world of eco-anxiety, my friend. Well, Dr. Bernstein, you've been concerned about looking at that impact on the young people you interact with? Absolutely. And that concern was heightened with a recent study, probably the first study that really gave us a sense of how widespread our our children and adolescents were feeling anxious and and other negative emotions that came out last year that that showed that, you know, some 60% of adolescents in in many countries, it was done in 10 countries, are really um, worried. And, you know, they describe themselves as very or extremely worried about climate change. And 45% of the adolescents said that those fears were negatively impacting their their wellness on a daily basis. And and to that, I would say the antidote to despair is action. To me, this is ever more reason for us to engage and empower our adolescents in the fight on climate change, because that is, in my view, one of the best, maybe the best way to to deal with this. It is so easy for our minds to focus on the future, particularly for those who are deeply concerned. And the adolescent mind is particularly vulnerable to this. And we can talk more about the biology of that, but we know from research that adolescent minds, um, you know, they're they're really in some ways vulnerable uh, to to this kind of anxiety. And, And we have to address that 
And, and I would underscore the reality that, again, many of the things we need to do to, you know, to prevent climate change are good for mental health. There's compelling research, for instance, that more green space, uh, particularly for children living in cities who are not exposed to much, can actually lower the floor on mental health risks, right? So children who grow up with more green space are likely going to have less mental health problems. Fossil fuel exhaust, uh, air pollution, bad for brains. And exercise, of course, really good for mental health. You know, this is a shot over the bow to those of us who are in healthcare, to those of us who are concerned about climate, that if we really want to focus on this issue that is facing our children right now, which is mental health, we must take climate action and we'll get a big win-win. Well, Beth, this seems to go right back to what you said earlier, which is there has to be some acknowledgement, recognition, things that are working. Yeah, I mean, look, Dr. Bernstein's totally right. I mean, I have a 15-year-old who exhibits all of these things at once, and her friends, I mean, they're living in a very different world today that does not have the same promise. If you don't have those points of light, I think all is lost because it's just despair and darkness. Kavel? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I didn't grow up with a climate club in my school, but they are all over Massachusetts. And the Massachusetts Youth Climate Coalition is doing really great work in motivating and explaining and educating the opportunities that exist. I work with a lot of young people with Sunrise as well. And they're just a delightful group that want the solutions and know that the solutions exist and won't take no for an answer. So I applaud the fact that they are doing the work that they are, that they're engaged. Um, I understand, I I have young children myself, so I, I do understand the complexities around trying to explain these things sometimes. And, you know, I, I, suffer in my home from having a meeting and not realizing that my 12-year-old is listening, you know. And so it is important that we empower each other with the opportunities that exist and what Dr. Bernstein was saying around a whole host of issues with, with healthy living and seize them and have the young people steward the way because they are going to inherit this earth. They are very cognizant of that and they have the answers just as we all do as adults, which is something that my generation certainly did not. Really quickly, there's a study out of Britain where they used research to analyze tens of thousands of butterfly specimens in the Natural History Museum's collection and found that British butterflies are getting bigger in response to climate change. Dr. Bernstein? Well, this is one among many such studies, Callie, which shows that nature is, you know, feeling the effects of a changing climate. And, And to me, what it really speaks to is While we'd like to think that somehow our species, because of our supposed wisdom, is is able to float above the tapestry of life, but that's a complete delusion. And just as the butterfly's constitution changes with a changing climate, that's true for us too. And and I think for many people, you know, and and I'm mindful of of so many people uh, in this country who have profound ties to nature, either because it's what they you know, involve for a living, it's a part of their cultural heritage, that this is an obvious reality. But for many people living in cities and, and who've grown up sort of apart from a connection to nature, it's hard to see. Um, but the, you know, the butterfly is telling us something <laughs> and it's telling us that our actions are changing the tapestry of life and that we have to recognize how our lives are very much embedded in that tapestry. And so we must focus on our role, not just to ourselves, but of course, to all the other life forms that we share the planet with. Well, that's a good place to leave it. So thank you all for joining me today.
Thank you so much. Great to be with you, Kelly. Thank you. Beth Daly is editor and general manager of The Conversation U.S. Cabell Ames is political director of Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. And Dr. Aaron Bernstein, interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston's Children's Hospital, and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Coming up, a new initiative by the Lexington Historical Society has uncovered more details about slavery's presence in colonial Lexington. For the first time for this year's Patriots Day celebration, the society will have materials that include the new research. The goal is for visitors to understand that what many call the Cradle of Liberty was indeed home to enslaved black people. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.